1: From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, politics journalist Jane Kostin is the new host of the New York Times opinion podcast, The Argument, a place for, quote, strongly held opinions, open minded debates, only occasional yelling. We'll talk with Kostin, who has covered conservatism and the American right, about the meaning of a productive argument in an era of widespread disinformation, and get her take on CPAC and the latest political news. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Nina Kim. When's the last time you had a productive argument with someone from another political party? Jane Coaston, in announcing her new role as host of the New York Times podcast, The Argument, writes, quote, The best arguments and the ones I like to have are the ones that make me think differently. They help inform my opinions or challenge them, and they help me understand the people who have other points of view. Coaston has reported for years on conservatism and the American right and has heard all manner of the other side is evil statements. Jane Coaston joins us now. Welcome.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
1: So glad to have you. And, And clearly, the other side is evil is not a productive place to begin a debate. So... What are the prerequisites to having the kind of argument that you describe that informs challenges,
3: creates greater understanding of the other person? I think that the prerequisites for such a debate are threefold. I think the first aspect is to have a unified context. This is why arguing on Twitter or on social media can be so awful, Uh, because you are coming from a context of you want to understand this person, but perhaps the other person is in a I'm just saying this to make you mad or I'm just saying this to impress the other people who follow us. Or I'm just saying this for no apparent reason. It's really good to have the same context and the same understanding of the information at hand. I think that's the second part of this argument. You need to be arguing about the same thing. And I think that that's when um, When I talk to people about challenging arguments they have, they talk a lot about family arguments. And I note that many of those arguments are purportedly about politics or religion, but a lot of times they're about something else entirely. Maybe that argument you're having with your mom on Facebook is actually about the fact that you haven't called your mom in six months. Who could say? So and I think that having that unified information and knowing what you're actually really arguing about, having a finite argument, Mm. an argument that isn't just going to turn into something else. I think that's really important. But I'd say the third thing is a sense of mutual respect and a willingness to be wrong. I think that um, I describe this on the Internet as intense debate team energy where people go into arguments with a desire to destroy their opponent or dominate your opponent or whatever is going to show up on your YouTube SEO. (laughs) But if you actually want to have a conversation with someone, you have to be willing at some point to be wrong. Being wrong, I'm aware for many people, is very challenging. But as someone who has been publicly wrong before, it's not the worst thing in the world to be wrong. And especially if that helps change your mind or widen your viewpoint and then sometimes there are going to be times where the other person is wrong, but you're correct. And maybe you it's more helpful for you to help expand the other person's worldview or sense of understanding than it is for you to just dominate them in a sporting contest of wrongness. Hmm. So I think that those are the three facets that are really important. Having a similar context, having an agreed upon set of facts and knowing what you're actually arguing about and having the openness and willingness to be wrong yourself.
1: Where do you think the biggest what what's missing the most from our current political discourse if you had to choose one two or
3: three oh my oh my goodness um i think that it is the fact that we are attempting to have political conversations but those political conversations are in many cases highly performative and Mm. both intentionally and unintentionally so if you see people um say, a senator arguing on Twitter, he is doing so. Or the person who runs his Twitter communications is doing so with the purpose of being observed by you with either changing or making them seem more attractive or less attractive to you, because notably he is thinking or she is thinking that if I turn off these constituents, these other constituents will love it, that'll be great. So I think that that performativity really bothers me in our politics in which we're having these conversations and we purport to want to have good faith conversations. But what so many people want to have is something that they can go back to their donors saying, look, I dominated this person on the Internet or look that this YouTube compilation of me beating this person in an argument. And I think the performative nature of our politics is challenging because performance is really easy. Politics is really hard. There are going to be times in which you're going to be wrong. There are times where you're going to need more information. There are times where the answer is not the attractive one that makes that is easy to put out in a press release. But I think that when you recognize that you are having a conversation with someone, not at someone, which are two separate ideas, I think that's when an argument can actually be pretty effective.
1: It's interesting when you mentioned the three prerequisites, the unified context one really jumped out at me because what I frequently hear from people is that there isn't agreement on basic facts. For example, the fact that there was not widespread fraud in the election of President Joe Biden, for example. Right. How do you get to a productive argument if you
3: don't agree on
1: the facts?
3: I think that that's really challenging. But I would say... um... I spoke to someone a couple of weeks ago who's an expert at thinking about these exact questions, and he used the example of talking to people who are vaccine deniers, where what you should do, because you're understanding, you're coming to this with the I want you to accept these facts, and they are coming with the understanding of I want you to accept my facts. But I think it's interesting to get at, okay. where are you getting this information? Why is it important for you to believe this? For I think that with regard to not accepting the election results, I think of that in some ways as. It is a far more pleasant story to tell oneself that the election was stolen than the story that Donald Trump lost the election, the story that Donald Trump focused on. Um, extremely online Internet concerns and was able to both radicalize his own base, but also his own opposition, while which meant that there was a massive voter turnout both for him and against him. But that is not as much of a pleasant story. And in politics, there are so many stories we wish were true. I have a lot of candidates or a lot of political beliefs that I really wish other people were into. It's sort of like how you can't understand why other people don't like a band that you like. (laughs) And you're like, come on, how could you not be into this? And they're like, I'm just not. And I think that. When you're in an argument, say, about this particular subject or about vaccine denial, it's important to know where are they getting their information? Hmm. Why do they trust this information over other information? Or why do they seemingly trust misinformation over other information? And so much of that is because we have expanded, and I think it's a good thing, we have expanded the sources of information people can obtain, but also people are people, which means they're going to gravitate towards the sources of information that tell them what they want to hear. People want to hear that it's not their fault and that they aren't wrong, somebody else is, or that something has been taken away from them. And I think that that's something that's pretty similar across the board, and I, I wish it weren't, but I think it is. And so I think it's important to start out especially because if you just start throwing facts at them, let's keep in mind that if you have built up this bulwark of vaccine denialism or electoral fictions, you probably have a lot of like, well, I saw this article on Facebook or something like that. And then you want to ask, what is it about that article that jumped out to you? What is it about these pieces of information that jumped out to you? You can't. This is not something where you can just throw facts at people. That does not tend to work. We've done it. There's been a lot of really interesting research on the idea of fact checking people. And it tends to actually make people hold on to fictions harder. Mm -hmm. But if you ask a lot of questions and ask you, what is it about this that appealed to you? What are you most concerned about? What are your biggest fears here? Um, If you talk to people about, say, vaccine denial, their fears are often about I don't want to be told what to do. I'm concerned about freedom, something like that. And so you can have you can have a conversation that's about that. You can have a conversation that's without just throwing facts at people. But I do think it's important that when people I've done a lot of writing on conspiracy theories Um, and a lot of times people hold on to conspiracy theories because it is a it is a safe space for them and it is also a space in which they are being told exactly what they need to hear most. And so while they conspiracy theories are often ridiculous and offensive and many times both, they are often comforting. They are deeply comforting, and especially because they provide what researchers call insider outsider knowledge. Mm-hmm. Think about all of those uh, Internet ads that you see, like what the experts don't want to tell you or what this person doesn't want you to know. Everyone knows that that kind of language is very effective because we all want insider knowledge, conspiracy theories or anti-vaxxers or people who believe the election was stolen. That is. Is based on a sense of wanting insider knowledge that while all these other people might believe what every factual based outlet is saying, you have the real story. It's that insider outsider knowledge. And the more to them, the more outsider knowledge you seem to throw at them with actual facts, the more they want to hold on to the insider knowledge, not necessarily because. That knowledge is better, it's not, but because it is aimed purely at you're right and all these people are wrong.
1: So really understanding that appeal, getting at what you were saying earlier about understanding the people who have other points of view. We're talking with longtime politics journalist Jane Koston about her new role as host of The New York Times Opinion podcast, The Argument. And, and Jane Cozen, you've put the call out to readers and listeners to tell you what they're arguing about and what issues they'd want to hear debated on the argument. So let me invite listeners to do the same. What are you arguing about? What? issues are top of mind for you right now and that you would want to hear debated or argued on the argument, you can call us at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. Email your questions or your suggestions to forum at kqed.org or get in touch on Twitter or Facebook. I should also ask you, Jane, though, just before the break, what are some parameters to keep in mind for our listeners when they're suggesting these topics to you?
3: Um. I think that the only parameters I would really have are make it something of which there is more nuance than just a yes or no. I think that it, it's important that one of the challenges we have is sometimes that we have, we have a lot of arguments that are, that seem very small. And I want you to suggest those. Cause sometimes those small arguments are the ones that can divide you and a friend for decades. Mm. But I would also say, you know, make make sure it's an argument where both sides have a fulsome argument behind them because sometimes there are arguments where the answer is no (laughs) and those are interesting but you know less workable for a podcast right well
1: your first episode is on the filibuster whether the filibuster should be killed once and for all and we'll dig into that right after the break you're listening to forum i'm mina kim Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking to Jane Koston, who just took over as host of the New York Times podcast, The Argument. Formerly at Vox, she was a senior politics reporter focusing on conservatism, the American right, the GOP, and white nationalism. And we're inviting you, our listeners, to join the conversation. What would you like to hear debated or argued on The Argument to show that debates, issues that are top of mind for people, and for example, the very first episode that they that Jane Koston hosted was on the filibuster and whether or not we should kill the filibuster once and for all. What's a topic you'd like to suggest? Also curious, listeners, how political debates are playing out in your circles these days. You can share that at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. Get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. So, Jane Kostin, why did you make the filibuster your first topic?
3: Um, well, first and foremost, I'm always interested in issues that are seem to be about one thing, but a lot of times they're about something way bigger. Mm. When you hear the term filibuster, I mean, it sounds insidery. I mean, it sounds sort of like we made it up, or it sounds like this is like, you know, a term for a political party from the 1820s, or like an old school basketball team like the Knickerbockers. Yes. But... I think that what the what the battle of the filibuster in many ways really is about is what is the Senate supposed to do? Is the Senate supposed to be, quote, the the cooling saucer of democracy where the House is where everything gets all riled up and then everything goes to the Senate and you slow things down and you're supposed to have this very deliberative debate? Or is the Senate the place where you pass stuff Mm. and is the passing of stuff good? And I think that the filibuster conversation that we got into, Um, with my colleague and friend Ezra Klein and Heritage Action for America's Jessica Anderson was a conversation about how the filibuster is a tool essentially in which you basically need for pretty much most things to pass the Senate is a it effectively creates a 60 vote minimum to pass most laws Right. right now Democrats have a 51 vote majority because they have Vice President Harris's tiebreaker And so there are a lot of big things that Democrats want to get done that they can't get done because of the filibuster, because Republicans could filibuster those potential those potential bills. And without that 60 vote majority, it's just not going to happen. And so there are a lot of Democrats who've been arguing for several years that it's time to just shove the filibuster off a cliff. My issue that I raised and I think that other people raised is that, well, Democrats filibustered the Trump administration a lot Um, in late 2020, 2019. There were a host of issues in which because of the filibuster, despite the fact that Republicans had control of Congress, there were a host of issues that Democrats were able to stymie Republicans on. So to me, it came across as like it's like a trick play in college football. I used to write about the NFL and college football. So I think about things in football terms (laughs) a lot of the time, but it's like a trick play. And one of the most annoying things in the world is when another team uses a trick play against you to score and you're like, that shouldn't be legal. Mm. And then you use the trick play and you're like, this trick play is amazing. It's fantastic. And I don't see any problems with it. So but I think that this is a really it was a fascinating conversation about what do you want the Senate to do? What do you want the Senate to do when? You're in the majority. What do you want the Senate to do when your opponents are in the majority? And I think that that was was a fascinating way to get this conversation started.
1: And it really was a a fascinating conversation. And I want to encourage our listeners to listen to it. So I'm going to play a clip from it, but just the beginning so it doesn't spoil anything. Um, It's you setting the stage for this first conversation, which was with Ezra Klein, as you say, and Jessica Anderson of Heritage Action. And let's hear a little of it right now.
3: Ezra, I'm glad you're here because we've worked together for a long time. And I don't think I've ever told you that we disagree about the filibuster. Mm, So I can
0: understand why that would have been awkward for you to bring up.
3: Yes, in our time together. But um, Jessica, I do not know you as well, but I'm excited to get to know you because I think we kind of agree, but don't agree. So we're going to agree to disagree on all three levels today then. But I, I, I believe I oppose agreeing to disagree. Ooh. Oof. Okay. So we're going to disagree to agree to disagree. Done. <laughs> I'm there.
1: Okay. So that's the beginning of uh, Jane Costen's uh, the Argument podcast, where she is facilitating an argument between Ezra Klein and Jessica Anderson on the filibuster. And there were a few questions that immediately came to mind as I listened to the first episode. And. I wanted to play that because one of the things that really struck me was that you oppose agree to disagree. And I'm curious if that was just for purposes of this, or is that something you generally oppose?
3: I think it's something I genuinely oppose because I think that this gets into, I think, a controversial viewpoint of mine, which I'm I'm happy to discuss, which (laughs) is that we have a lot of debates in this country in which we are told, well, let's just agree to disagree. But there are a lot of things on which where you can't do that, where there is going to be you're going to have one side or the other. You can't have you, you the two sides not cannot necessarily exist simultaneously. And so I think that and this has been raised by not just me that agree to disagree in some ways can be kind of a cop out like You can keep the debate going until you get to a point where what you kind of understand the other side, but agree to disagree in some ways is like you're stopping the car and you're getting out on the highway. and You just don't want to do anything else. And so I think that there are a lot of people who do that because they don't want to have the argument. They don't want to do this or because there isn't a way to have the argument. And I think that this is a really important point. We have a lot of debates in this country that are completely untethered from a number or a working paper or a fact or anything that could give one side clear, obvious victory. We have some of the messiest political and cultural conversations in this country and elsewhere because there are so many debates in this country that are about people that are about emotions, that are about people relating to other people and themselves. And saying I I agree to disagree is essentially just saying, like, I don't want to do any of that. I don't want to do any of the hard work and self-examination that might be required by these conversations. I would rather just get out and leave here. And I don't know if anyone's ever been with a friend who gets really annoyed. I I had a friend once who was very annoyed because we were in traffic for a long time and she genuinely contemplated just getting out of her car in traffic and walking away. And we just kept telling her, like, you can't do that. This is very annoying and you don't like it and no one's enjoying themselves. But at some point, the traffic will stop and you do have to keep going. And I think that that's what, to me, agreeing to disagree is. It's like, I don't want to have this argument. I want to get out of the car. I don't want to do any of this. And I don't think that's fair to the arguments that we actually really need to have. Hmm. Well, we have
1: your first topic suggestion. Jim writes, it's third party advocacy season in American politics again. It's a purely mathematical argument about split votes and the spoiler effect, but yields so many accusations of corruption. So it sounds like Jim would like to have a conversation about third parties. One of the other things I wanted to bring up for you, Jane, is in that clip that we played of your first uh, podcast segment, you say or you show that you have some pretty strong opinions yourself. And I'm curious how that influences the way you facilitate an argument on the argument.
3: I think it's effective because I think that so often we when we're thinking about important arguments, the idea is that you're supposed to be above having an opinion or acting in some ways as the voice of God, um, not in a biblical sense, but in mm-hmm. a kind of the of uh, the all knowing observer who does not have any actual stake in the game. But I'm a person with opinions and <laughs> I'm also a person who I have a lot of deeply held and deeply felt opinions. Some of those opinions are probably correct, um, but. And some of those opinions are probably very incorrect, but I think that it's important for me to be truthful of my audience and not pretend as if "Ah, I have no deep feelings on these particular issues. I'm just wandering in here. No, that's not true. I have a lot of deeply held perspectives and viewpoints, but I also have the charity and the willingness to listen to other people's deeply held perspectives and be willing to be proven wrong or be willing to. Stay with my opinion, because I'm not asking people when they're listening to the show. And we got a couple of emails from people saying this radicalized me against the filibuster or I now really support the filibuster because of this. And I think both of those responses are great. What we want people to do is listen to other perspectives. And if that leaves you exactly where you started, well, that's cool, too. I, I really I don't think that everyone's viewpoint needs to be changed in about a 45 minute long podcast. But I think that having my opinions be pretty straightforward and having getting having the audience get to know me as a person with viewpoints and opinions. I think that that shows my respect for the audience to not act as if I'm just coming in here, um, you know, with no perspective at all.
1: Well, let me go to caller Lewis in Saratoga. Hi,
3: Lewis.
0: Hi, I, this is a really fascinating topic and I think it's like at the, the heart of a lot of the issues that, you know, face us. How do, and it's it's struggling like we've talked about talking to parents and, and, and family members and aunts and uncles and, and friends um, who you may not talk to for years about, you know, some unrelated issue to politics. But uh, anyway, for my question, um, this is when I tried to get at the crux of uh, uh, arguments. And so uh, my question would be, is how do conservatives in any country really deal with this cost of negative externalities, things like pollution? And the reason I ask that is I think it really gets to the heart of why a lot of people's mindsets are the way they are. So I hope that's a good question. Thanks.
1: Um, You mean when, for example, if they're debating something associated with climate change and they're not taking into account certain externalities that it, and what effect does that have if they're not taking into account the externalities that you're talking about? Yes. Uh, Jane Kostin, any thoughts for Lewis?
3: Um, I think that it's worth thinking about how some so much of our politics is actually invulnerable to actual events. And I think that that's something that we saw over the last year in which you had a host of conservatives for the first time in a long time in the United States thinking about, okay, it's time to start making direct payments to individuals, to families. It started to think about, like, what is the government for in a real sense? But then you also heard a lot of conservatives saying, like, we shouldn't do any of that. And I think that the idea of negative externalities having an impact on politics, I think, is It's a challenging question, because I think that sometimes it seems as if these externalities should have a major impact on how a conservative or liberal thinks. But then a lot of times it doesn't, because those externalities are not at all connected to why people have their particular political viewpoints, Mm. because those political viewpoints are shaped in some ways. You You shape in some and this is I hope this comes across correctly. You reshape the externality to your political viewpoints. Your understanding is that if companies, if the free market was even freer and if we increased deregulation to a rapid extent, companies would be incentivized to reduce pollution. Ergo, you could fix the problem of pollution if only you were a more true conservative. And I think that. It, it is also interesting though that we've seen in America that the conservative movement has reshaped itself in many respects um, by virtue of the former president. You're hearing a host of conservatives making the argument that they should encourage Amazon to unionize because Amazon's not not because of unionization, but because Am- Amazon is cancel culture. Or you're hearing conservatives arguing for the you know federal regulation of social media websites. Um, with a dramatic misunderstanding of Section 230 the Communications Decency Act. But that is in some ways that externality is Donald Trump. And it is interesting to see how flexible or inflexible political movements are two externalities. I think that that's something that's been really interesting for me to observe as someone who's thought a lot about movement conservatism and philosophical conservatism for a long time, where you repeatedly saw with the pollution example or with others that you would say like, what we need is more conservative conservatism. It's like the SNL sketch of like, you know, we've got a fever and the only um, prescription is more cowbell. But it turns out that when the externality is Donald Trump, someone who pulled time after time and time again as being more popular than Republicans, more popular than congressional Republicans, it turns out that Conservative understandings of the market can actually be pretty flexible,
1: right? Well, let me ask you about CPAC because it's—it was so striking the extent to which it appears that Donald Trump is really the party at the moment. If you take CPAC as the um, indication of that, so much of the focus was on basically grievance over Trump's loss and it turned into i guess if you could call it a policy prescription making it harder to vote that's where a lot of the momentum was the other part of the the other part of the um conservative political action committee conference that got a lot of play was cancel culture as you say and this deplatforming mm-hmm. of trump by big tech and so on and while those things are very animating i couldn't help but ask like wh- where does that go though in terms of in terms of governing or policy?
3: Well, I think that that's intrinsically the point. Um, I think that one of the challenges, one, CPAC is a very strange event, it always is in terms of how it is connected with the wider conservative universe. Um, For example, the winners of the straw polls over the last couple of years, I believe Ron Paul won the straw poll numerous times, Donald Trump won it this year. Jack Kemp has won the straw poll. Mitt Romney won it, I think, twice. And so what is um, what is extremely popular at CPAC and what is extremely popular elsewhere um, sometimes differs, shall we say? (laughs) But I do think that the focus of cancel culture as this idea and I actually we've got an upcoming episode on that and I've, I've talked about it before, but Those sort of culture war cudgels are ideal for this particular version of the Republican Party where they prefer to act as an opposition party. They have for a long time to stand against things happening. Uh, If you'll recall how much talk there was about um, it's time to repeal and replace Obamacare, but when it came time to do it, it turns out that that's way harder than to, it's way harder said than done, clearly. So it turns out that if you just focus on the said part, Life is a lot simpler. But those culture war cudgels that are very difficult to define, but they are very difficult issues to either win or lose somewhere. Someone is going to get fired for some reason, because the actual issue here is at will employment. But you can use any of these issues as being an example of of cancel culture or you can complain about you know, someone getting fired or something being something somewhere. And that will always be a useful fundraising effort or some sort of, you know, but there's, there's no policy that is going to be devised to stop that. No one is going to say like, it's now illegal to fire someone for saying something dumb on the internet. That's not going to happen, but that's perfect because no one has to put forward the bill. You just have to say it in the speech. And I will note that like, a annual tradition at CPAC is that someone always gets canceled off of the roster for saying something insane. And this, th- you know, this year's example was a rapper named Young Pharaoh who espoused extreme anti-Semitic viewpoints and said that uh, Judaism was a complete lie that was made up for political gain. And he got, and then he started saying, like, oh, I've been censored and canceled. So it's really We all have viewpoints that we we find anathema. CPAC does too. And it's interesting to me that this, that CPAC decided to really ride hard on an America uncancelled agenda while also canceling someone for completely understandable reasons.
1: We're talking with Jane Costen, longtime politics journalist. Her new role is as host of the New York Times opinion podcast, The Argument. And we'll have more with her after the break. You can also join the conversation 866-733-6786. Email your questions or comments to forum at kqed.org or reach us on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. I'm Nina Kim. Stay with us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. What are you arguing about these days? What issues are top of mind for you right now that you would like to hear debated or argued on the New York Times Opinion podcast, The Argument? Jane Koston is the new host of the New York Times podcast, and she is a longtime politics journalist who covered uh, conservatism, the American right, QAnon, white nationalism. And you can join the conversation at 866-733-6786. Email us, forum at kqed.org or uh, you can reach us on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. And Jane Kostin, before I I jump to the calls and comments, um, one of the things I just wanted to ask you was, okay, so if cancel culture and so on are sort of the animating principles and they're trying to galvanize uh, their base of support, that's one thing. But I do want to ask you, what is the broader governing or policy agenda that you're hearing from Republicans right now or conservatives right now?
3: I think that... First, I would note that the idea of cancel culture as being a main animator for conservative voters, I think it's going to be a challenge. There's been recent polling showing that millions of Americans don't know what cancel culture is supposed to be, which is probably for the best because no one needs to be that online. But I would say that there are many animating and competing visions of what conservatism is supposed to look like. If you have the free markets, free minds, conservatism Uh, that's heavily influenced by libertarians, you're going up against a post-liberal conservatism that wants the state to step in to uh, ensure the common good. Those are competing visions of what conservatism is supposed to be. Conservatism has long been a movement delineated by what it is not, what it opposes. Even in the 1960s, 1970s, the rise of fusionism, the bonds between neoconservatives, paleoconservatism, and libertarians was about their coupled opposition to communism and to the Soviet Union. But if you are defined by what you're against, sometimes it's hard to figure out what you're for. And that's why we've seen many of the same people who are. If you were alive in the early 2000s, you've seen many of the same people who are currently talking about how dumb the Iraq War was being very supportive of the Iraq War because they knew that they were opposed to the people who didn't like the Iraq War. And I think that that's one of the challenges that you see for mainstream conservatism is it is an opposition party, much the way that opposition parties work in parliamentary systems, where in some ways their job is to stop the main party or the Democrats or progressives from progressing. There is an idea that they need to stop. They need to stymie. They need to stand athwart, to quote William F. Buckley. But. What are they for? There are a lot of competing visions here. There are a lot of there are people there, criminal justice reform advocates among conservatives who want to reduce the number of private prisons. There are conservatives who want to make pornography as they view it to be illegal. There are conservatives who want to expand the welfare state such as it exists today. There are conservatives who just want to expand the earned income tax credit. And they all get in giant fights on the Internet about it, which is something that I I think a lot of people aren't aware of is how much disagreement there is among conservatives. But so I would say that there are many visions, but there is no one singular governing vision for conservatism right now.
1: And that isn't unique to you? I mean, I know you're saying that they've always been an opposition party, but I, I, it feels like really missing this time around, just, you know, just from casual observation, I guess. And so it concerns me about the future of a healthy democracy.
3: I mean, I think that that is, that is challenging, but I also think that it is not, they are not alone in having many competing visions. I think that one of the challenges Democrats have right now is that the tent for Democrats has been widened with the with people who were former Republicans becoming Democrats and people who are far, far farther to the left also being viewed as Democrats. And there is a lot of discontent in that particular family circle. So I think that this is not this is not new. This is not necessarily unique to the conservative movement. But I think that there are I think it's it's challenging when there are these hosts of ideas and they are inherently conflicting. And so much of this is coming from a movement conservatism and from movement liberalism, where the job is supposed to put liberal and conservative ideas into political practice. But a lot of times those political practices disagree with themselves.
1: Well, let me go to some callers, Damien in Santa Rosa. Hi, Damien. Join us.
0: Hey, thanks for having me. So what would you like to hear about? Yeah. Well, I appreciate the program very much, and I'm sure this would be the most non-controversial topic at all, but um, I'd love to hear a debate on the existence of God and whether or not we should allow it to influence so much of our politics, both from, like, churches and tax policy all the way to both sides claiming righteousness and that political view and, and using it to Justify their own leanings and policies, and and every other way that it affects our life, even though we are supposedly a secular culture, and that non-religious affiliated people are the largest, uh, you know, forming group. And just uh, and and I'm sh- and I'm sure that would be very non-controversial. But a lot of the arguments that I have end up in this in a logical end where where the justification for the belief is an existence of a god that I would. You know, disagree with the premise of. So hmm. take my answer off the air. Thank
1: well, you. Well, Damien, thanks. I mean, I think Damien is echoing a few other comments that we're getting about the role of religion in American politics. Um, but Damien is also elevating it to this other level, of really, this question about the existence of God. But um, is religion and politics something you're you're considering as a future topic or something related to that, Jane?
3: Absolutely. I f- we just recorded an episode on the death penalty, which of course mm. that ties into. But as someone with a deep background in Christianity and specifically the Catholic church. And as someone who has thought a lot about scripture, I think a lot about this question, but so have people since this country's founding. It's it's interesting to me that the religious traditions of this country's founders were both very similar and very different from ours today. Thomas Jefferson, for instance, was a deist who essentially believed that God created the world and then left. And he famously created a version of the Bible in which he excised everything that seemed illogical, which I've read the Bible many times. And that's a lot of the Bible that can <laughs> seem illogical sometimes. But I would also say that that is we are a very religious country, but we are also an extremely secular country. And I would also say that there are many instances in which there is um Uh, The caller made the point about the increased number of people who are non-affiliated with religious groups or non-affiliated with um, a mainstream religion or who are non-believers. And I think that that in itself is a fascinating development because we think we have put our politics into how best to put this. We think about our politics sometimes in a almost religious way. Mm. And I think that that really concerns me. And a lot of times because what you hear um, specifically on the right from Christian dominionists is that they tied Donald Trump's presidency to a specific interpretation of Christianity and to an overarching muscular Christianity, to use that term, that Trump's loss made impossible. So they just simply can't acknowledge that. But I also think that that means that for many Christians who are on the political left, they have found themselves excised from what political Christianity is considered to be. When we hear about Christians and politics, you're thinking about CPAC. You're not thinking about um, Senator uh, Warnock. You're not thinking about the role that Christian liberals have played in progressive and left leaning politics for years, you know, in globally, clearly. And so I think that it's worth having that conversation. But I do think that that's an interesting debate to be had, because I think that we use secularism and the the idea of a secular government. But then in many respects, we don't adhere to it. We don't adhere to an understanding that our politics is supposed to be secular. And there have been at any number of Supreme Court lawsuits attempting to hammer out what that actually means. And I think that that's why I've always been interested in the role of minority religions in this country. I've said that uh, Jehovah's Witnesses have often been the can- the canary in the coal mine when it comes to religious freedom, when the United States government enforced policies that forced people to do the the Pledge of Allegiance in schools. It was Jehovah's Witnesses who stood up against that. It's Jehovah's Witnesses and other religious minorities who are the reason for the religious freedoms that we enjoy today. And yet so many of our religious freedoms seem to be. I think used as cudgels in a way that I don't think is very helpful for anyone's understanding, but I do think that that's. I'm thinking about all of this in real time, and now I'm thinking, yes, we absolutely have to do an episode on this. I think that that's something, especially for non-believers, non-believers who are a rapidly growing section of the population, and yet they we see all the time that in our politics it is completely fine for people to talk about atheists as if they are heathens, even using that term. And I think that that's a fascinating development that is reflective of how. Our culture is changing and yet it remains unchanged on these many important aspects.
1: Well, here are a few more options, and, and Judy actually also responds to this religion question. Judy tweets, $15 minimum wage is issues to debate, vax priorities, school openings. I cheer this, as Jonathan Haidt says, politics and religion are among the most important discussions we can have. We've lost the art of how to do so without getting worked up. Jill writes, how about debating the need, pros and cons for regulating cable news? It seems to be missing from the conversation when social media platforms and fake news is brought up. It's been weaponized and exists mainly for ad dollars and ratings. It's not news it's entertainment that of course was the subject of the big hearing in the house committee david writes the police seem vilified in the media today accusations of wholesale police brutality toward minority groups are trotted out despite the absence of credible facts certain groups cherry pick their facts or support extreme positions any attempts at discussion is usually canceled out immediately why does the media and others wrestle with all the complicated issues showing all sides don't know if any of those topics are ones that you want to comment on jane otherwise i can go to a call
3: Oh, I would I would love to, actually. Um, I think these are all great ideas. I I will say that I'm really interested in two of the issues uh, callers um, brought up one on policing. And I think that it's interesting how we have this simultaneous, um, as he notes, viewed denigration of policing. But if anyone in who listens is into true crime or like law and order type television, you will never see more support for police than you do in those particular genres. So it's a very it's a complicated relationship. And I think it's also one that is complicated by our understanding of who is doing the policing and who is getting policed. I think that we saw that um, one of the things that really struck me about the attempted January 6th insurrection in the Capitol, which is just a few blocks away from my apartment where I'm recording this is the recordings of people screaming at law enforcement. there saying, like, We're, you're supposed to be on our side. Mm-hmm. The idea that law enforcement, you police some people and you don't police other people. And that's really my main issue here is the idea of either everyone is getting police the same or really no policing is actually taking place. And I would also say on the issue of, um, you know, canceling certain networks or an understanding of what news gets to be, I think that that gets us into a very ugly place where if we, if we treat one of the challenges, and I, I've been thinking a lot about this, is that Newsmax, Fox News um, own any of these networks. One, there is nothing that could happen to any of these networks that could not happen to a liberal slash leftist counterpart in the future. Mm. Um, I think that occasionally when we have one party in power, we have this idea of like we will achieve all our victories and they will never be taken away. and We will never be in the minority ever again. Um, I remember back in 2012, there was some piece that was like Democrats will essentially have the majority forever. And that's not what happened. And I think that any effort taken with regard to law and the media has to be taken with the political understanding that at some point this could be used against the Intercept or my former employer Vox.com. This could be used against any outlet because it tends to be that when we want the government to surveil people who are alleged to be engaging in domestic terrorism, what has historically happened is that the government hears that and says, oh, you mean you want us to surveil Black Lives Matter? And we're like, that's not what we meant. But that's what the government saw that as being the most useful way to handle that. So I, I am always extremely hesitant about the state taking action against media outlets or taking action on any of these fronts, because I think that the understanding has to be is this could happen to you and to the ideas that you hold most dearly. Are you sure you really want to go down that road?
1: So clearly here is a rich debate for The Argument. Jane Cosin is the host of the New York Times Opinion podcast, The Argument, and you're listening to Forum. I'm Nina Kim. Let me go to Phil in Burlingame. Hi, Phil.
0: Hi, uh, great show. You know, a lot of the um, uh, GOP has been driven, for example, by the Coke network and um, the Mercers right now are a big part of this where, you know, they've had a lot to do with parlor, And so I don't think we should talk about CPAC or the GOP without understanding where the billionaires are in this. And mm. what is their objective? What are they driving this towards? Jane
1: Koston?
3: I think it's It's interesting how we talk about the role of billionaires and the role of wealth in our politics, because on the right. And this gets into the ugly, awful world of anti-Semitism. There's a lot of like, but what is George Soros doing? What is George Soros? You know, how many people is George Soros funding to do the thing we don't like them to do? And so I do think that the role that the Mercer family is playing, the Koch brothers are particularly fascinating because The Koch brothers have seemingly shifted towards being interested in criminal justice reform and also because they pulled a lot of money out of supporting Donald Trump. Now they've become very suspicious for their libertarian leanings among right wing circles because that's how things work now. But I think that the wider conversation needs to be had about money in politics and how do we feel about money in politics, whether or not we're in support of their aims of the money being spent or not. And I think that that's one where I would want to I mean, that's actually why now that I'm thinking about this, I think a campaign finance episode would be really interesting because we've <laughs> talked a lot about um, conservatives were very supportive of the Supreme Court ruling and Citizens United. And then it turns out that Democrats can pull in millions and millions and millions and millions and millions, and millions of dollars in so-called dark money or millions of dollars in the means by which. I think a lot of Republicans were like, hang on, only we can do that. And so I think it's a fascinating issue to see how money in politics is denigrated unless it's money in politics for your side. Well, let
1: me. And sort of where we began, because we've gotten several questions about how to counter lies, how to talk with family members. Robert writes, I have family members that post offensive or misinformed memes online. How can I find, add or post a counter argument? James writes, thank you for discussing this because I can't talk to my niece, who once seemed like an informal protege of mine. New age, organic gardener, working at the grassroots in the North Bay. Suddenly she's mimicking anti-vaccine, anti-government conspiracy theories on Facebook. How can I approach her if I don't have unlimited time to discuss Theories. Oh. We just have about thirty seconds, Jane. I know that's well, a well. First,
3: I'm I'm really sorry that you're going through that. I think that it's worth acknowledging how painful a lot of these family relationships and the yes. breakdown that's caused by these kinds of conspiracy theories. But I think all of this starts with the story about where the people got into this information. You find yourself in a Facebook wormhole, but maybe you find yourself in a Facebook wormhole because you were lonely, or We've heard from a host of the people who were involved in the attempted insurrection in the Capitol that this started out right after they lost their job or something like there's a stressor that happens. And so I think the best way to talk about these issues is to get like, why? Why is this? Why is this messaging appealing? What's going on right now? What's going on that makes this appealing? And also. Don't do it on Facebook. Oh boy. <laughs> like this is this is definitely a phone call type of conversation, not a Facebook messenger type of conversation. So am I right the very next episode drops Wednesday? It does. What is the topic? And, Can you tell us? Uh, <laughs> we're talking about populism and Trumpism, which mm. I think is particularly timely given CPAC.
1: All right. Well, Jane Coaston, really appreciate having you on. And congrats as the new host of the New York Times podcast, The Argument. Thank you so much. Really appreciate the time. Jane Coaston. Catcher on the argument, and thank you to Blanca Torres and Ariana Pale for producing today's segment. I'm Mina Kim. Thanks to our listeners for their questions, comments, and suggestions. Have a great day. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation.